Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are doing Alma 8 through 12. There's so much in here that we don't even finish the message to the people of Ammonihah. It just keeps going in 13. If we went through the whole sermon, this would be a two-hour podcast, wouldn't it? Yes. And unfortunately, it breaks this story in half. So forgive us if we jump into this whole big picture, but we'll keep our comments to 8 through 12. So this is the story of the destruction of Ammoniah. And that is significant, because for the first time, other than the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, where we know that Jerusalem must be destroyed by the Babylonians, but that's not the story of the Book of Mormon. This is the first time in the Book of Mormon that a city gets destroyed. And that becomes a type and a shadow of the second coming, because the reality is the second coming will be the destruction of our society as we know it. It will be the cleansing of the earth, and our society will be destroyed. So we can take a whole lot of cues from the destruction of Ammoniah and learn some things about our day. So we're going to approach this and kind of say big picture message here is, what do we learn about the destruction of Ammoniah that helps us as Latter-day Saints as we prepare for the second coming? So let me introduce what I call the law of increasing witnesses. It is, to me, one of the great messages of the Book of Mormon, and especially for the Latter-day Saints. It's something that I see the the significance almost every single day. Here is what I call the law of increasing witnesses. So Alma goes into this wicked city. And at first he turns around and says, "I'm not. they don't want me in there, I'm going to leave them alone, and the angel sends him back. And as he preaches to them, they say some interesting things. If you'll turn to Alma chapter 9, notice what they say to Alma. Verse 2, who art thou? Suppose ye that we shall believe the testimony of one man, although he should preach unto us so that the earth should pass away. And they hint that again in verse 6, who is God that sendeth no more authority than one man? And it's as if the Lord's up there saying, oh, okay, you want me to send someone else? Great. There's an interesting thing in Deuteronomy where in court proceedings, if it's a matter of life and death, you must have two witnesses, and salvation is a matter of life and death. I'm citing Deuteronomy 19.15. I think the people of Ammonihah have this text. They're so close to what the Nephites believe, but they're off. But they have the whole two witnesses thing down. They're like, who are you? Anyway, so who just are want, you? I just want to throw that out there. That's great. So who are you? One witness. So the Lord says, okay, fine. And he sends a greater witness. So who then is the second witness that the Lord sends to the citizens of Ammoniah? Now you say greater, but yet when we think about church position, is there anything greater than the great high priest? Right, and that's the point here, and that's the significant—I'm I'm, going to have to control my excitement here because we're going to ask that very question. How is this man a greater witness than the prophet himself? So who then does the Lord send to Ammoniah when they reject Alma? Amulek. He sends Amulek as a greater witness. So in what way is Amulek a greater witness than Alma? Now, clearly, we don't mean in terms of priesthood authority, and we probably don't mean in terms of knowledge or 
um, ability to quote the scriptures. But in what way is Amulek a greater witness than the prophet? Turn to chapter 10, verse 4. I am a man of no small reputation among those who know me. And yea, behold, I have many kindreds and friends, and I have acquired much riches by the hand of my industry. You know me. And then in verse 12, after Amulek testifies, verse 12, and when Amulek had spoken these words, the people began to be astonished, seeing there was more than one witness who testified. It's one thing to see Alma, this guy who's a big deal in another city, but now it's one of their own people. And that's the key. He's a greater witness because he's more known to the people to whom God is testifying. He's a more credible source. He's more believable because he's one of their own. He's one of them. And it leaves them without excuse. It's one thing for some stranger to come in and testify. It's another when it's my neighbor, someone I know. So do you all see the significance of that? To your friends, to your family member, you may very well be a greater witness than the prophet himself, not in terms of authority, not in terms of the ability to quote scripture or receive revelation even maybe, but in terms of the credibility in the heart of the person who needs the testimony. I think sometimes we're afraid to stand up, especially in social media, for anything religious. You know, we're okay posting cat videos or maybe a controversial sports take here and there. But to stand up for truth and righteousness, I think sometimes we're afraid. And I think Alma 10 is saying to us, wait a second, you need to be an Amulek, don't you? And this is the type and shadow of the second coming. The Lord doesn't need more prophets, seers, and revelators testifying. He needs more Amuleks testifying. He needs the testimony of friends and neighbors and people that they know. Now, let's go back to verse 13. So in 12, the people are astonished. This is Alma 10, verse 12. The people are astonished because Amulek is testifying, and yet the first word of verse 13 is, nevertheless, which means they're going to reject Amulek's testimony. So they rejected Alma, and now they've rejected Amulek. So the Lord is going to send an even greater witness, greater than Amulek. Now watch what he does. So someone steps forward to kind of question Amulek, to kind of chide Alma and Amulek. And his name in verse 31 is Zeezrom. There was one among them whose name was Zeezrom. He was the foremost to accuse Amulek and Alma, he being one of the most expert among them. So Alma and Amulek are being accused by Zeezrom. Now watch what Zeezrom does, what kind of person Zeezrom is. Go to chapter 11, and chapter 11 is the, 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 the face-off, so to speak. Zeezrom is going to try and take down Alma, and pro- probably he has his sights on Amulek, kind of the inactive guy who suddenly appeared, the local guy, because Zeezrom seems to know that Amulek is a more credible witness, so let me take down Amulek. So in verse 21, Zeezrom began to question Amulek. Now, just so we know what kind of person Zeezrom was, he says, will you answer me a few questions which I ask you? Now, Zeezrom was a man who was expert in the devices of the devil. 
that he might destroy that which was good. Therefore, he said unto Amulek, will you answer the questions that I put to you? In other words, these are trick questions. He has no intention of getting the answer. He's trying to trip Amulek up. And then later in verse 22, And Zeezrom said unto him, Behold, here are six aunties of silver, and all these will I give you if you will deny the existence of a supreme being. See, he just wants to take down Amulek as a credible witness. And so his focus is on Amulek. Now notice the questions he asks in verse 28. Is there more than one God? That's a tricky question. And no matter what Amulek says, someone could twist that around and make him feel foolish for whatever his answer was. Look at verse 34. Shall he save his people in their sin? See the trick in the question? How about verse 38? Zeezrom asked him again, is the Son of God the very eternal Father? Now again, that's a very tricky question. Is Jesus the Father? And if I say yes, you could twist that around. If I say no, you could twist that around. All of this is Zeezrom trying to trick up Amulek. And yet every single time he asks a question, Amulek knocks it out of the park. And he testifies to the point where, ready, watch for the third witness coming. Look at verse 46, Alma eleven forty-six. When Amulek had finished these words, the people began to be astonished, and Zeezrom began to tremble. Do you see the third witness coming? Zeezrom began to tremble. Now in chapter 12, verse 1, Alma, seeing that Amulek had silenced Zeezrom, for he beheld that Amulek had caught him in his lying and deceiving to destroy him, and seeing that he began to tremble under a consciousness of his guilt. So Zeezrom is starting to tremble. Alma steps forward and speaks, and then in verse 7, when Alma had spoken these words, Zeezrom began to tremble more exceedingly, for he was convinced more and more of the power of God. Do you see what the Lord's doing? This is absolutely so thrilling if you see it from God's perspective. I sent you Alma. You rejected him. I sent one of your own. You reject. You bad guys rejected one of your own. Now I'm going to convert one of your own group. And they watch their own leader be converted. Zeezrom began to tremble. Now notice verse 8. Zeezrom asks a whole new series of questions. You got to understand that the questions he asks in 11 are trick questions trying to destroy Amulek. And now in verse tw- chapter 12, Zeezrom, verse 8, Zeezrom began to inquire of them diligently that he might know more concerning the kingdom of God. So everything in 12 and 13 is said to a believing Zeezrom who wants more truth and more understanding. Everything in chapter 11 are trick questions trying to prove them wrong. Interesting twist here in, in the text. But notice that leads us to all of the teachings in 12, which we'll get into, and then all of the teachings in 13, which is next week's Come, Follow Me, but it's an absolutely phenomenal chapter. So now we get to 14. After the Q&A... Are you talking about chapter 14? This is chapter 14. After the Q&A, after Zeezrom has been asking serious, diligent questions, wanting to know truth, and Alma and Amulek answer them, now chapter 14, verse 6... It came to pass that Zeezrom was astonished at the words which had been spoken. 
And he also knew concerning the blindness of the minds which he had caused among the people by his lying words. And his soul began to be harrowed up under a consciousness of his own guilt. Yea, he began to be encircled about by the pains of hell. And it came to pass that he began to cry unto the people, saying, Behold, now here we go, here's the third witness stepping forward. Behold, I am guilty, and these men are spotless before God. And he began to plead for them for that time forth. Now, do you see what the Lord did? The conversion of Zeezrom is one of the most powerfully convincing realities for the group that ran around with Zeezrom. It was one thing to reject Amulek because he's in my own city. It's harder to reject Zeezrom, who was in my inner circle. But that's what the Lord is doing. And that, I think that these chapters are screaming out to all of us to understand the law of increasing witnesses. And that is that the closer you get to a friend, the more credible your testimony becomes. For all you teachers listening to this and trying to see this envision, this law of increasing witnesses, you need to understand that your testimony is Alma and that the other people in the class are the Amuleks. And then the people within the intimate circle of your students are the Zeezrums. Your students are the Zeezrums and the Amuleks whose testimony are greater witnesses than yours. And what the Lord is saying in these chapters, and here's the message, we have to step forward and play our role in this restoration. God depends on the greater witnesses to testify. God depends on the Amuleks and the Zeezrums in the lives of these people to step forward and say, these testimonies, these truths are true. And the better we understand that, the more we can testify in powerful ways. If I'm a teacher and I don't call upon believing students in my class to testify to others, I've missed an opportunity for them to hear a more powerful witness. What do you do with this question? So Mark 6, where it talks about Jesus was rejected by his own. In John 1, it says he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. In Mark 6, when Jesus is teaching, it says, When the Sabbath was come, verse 2, Mark 6, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this that is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James? And then they get, get into his sisters and his family, and it says every, they were all offended at him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And so, yeah, it's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Because in the gospel narratives, we have his own siblings reject him, but then later, there are some of his biggest defenders, um, and, and even the people that lived closest to him, it seems like they struggle, at least in this narrative, with, with that. And I find that interesting, because we also send missionaries out, don't we? Like, if you are from, 
say you're from Anaheim, you're probably not going to be called to Anaheim. So what do you do with that? I think one of the things he's trying to say is the same thing. It's the law of increasing witnesses because what they're trying to say is, okay, a dignified prophet, a Moses-like figure, that we expect. But Jesus the carpenter, that we don't expect. And it's the same idea. Okay, I expect my seminary teacher to say great things, but man, I don't expect Joseph the carpenter to say them. And pulling that into our own world, it's when mom and dad say, I expect mom and dad to say these, but when my older brother says them to me, that I don't expect. And so that's the same idea, is we need the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus, the carpenters. We need the common element in our society, not the Moses figures with the tablets in their hands. We need the Jesus, the carpenters in our society to step forward and say, I testify that it's true. My life is my witness that this gospel is true. And then all of a sudden they stand kind of astounded that Jesus, the carpenter, is saying these things, that Mike, my neighbor, is saying these things, that Bryce, my friend, is saying these things. Now it's a more credible witness. And I think God is calling upon all the common people to rise up and understand the power they have when they testify. When a young man, a 14-year-old, stands up and says, I know it's true, to realize the power that has in his circle of friends and to never give him voice or for the 14-year-old to never take the opportunity to be voice. God needs the Amuleks, the Zeezrums, the Jesus, the Carpenters to rise up and say, I stand as a witness. Now, here's the last one. Going back to the city of Ammoniah, if you will not believe the Almas, the Amuleks, and the Zeezrums, God has one more witness. It's always the last one, and it's the scariest one. And he's just trying to say, look, destruction is next. I don't want to destroy you. I sent you Alma. I sent you Amulek. I sent you Zeezrom. And you wouldn't listen. And so he has one more witness left to the people of, of Ammoniah. So going back to verse 7, Alma chapter 14, verse 7, where Zeezrom says, I am guilty, and these men are spotless before God. And he began to plead for them from that time forth. Now notice the very next word, but, which means the people are going to reject Zeezrom. The man that they were following, their friend, so none of them were stepping forward to ask Amulek questions. They let Zeezrom do it. And then when Zeezrom turns on them, they betray him as well. They have rejected Alma, they have rejected Amulek, and now they have rejected Zeezrom. So God has one more witness for them. So Alma and Amulek are sent into prison. The bad guys come in to torment Alma and Amulek in the prison to beat them up. They strip them of their clothes. They wouldn't feed them food. They mock them. This is clearly an evil group of people. So God has one more witness. Alma fourteen twenty seven. It came to pass that so great was their fear that they fell to the earth and did not obtain the outer door of the prison. And the earth shook mightily. And the walls of the prison were rent in twain, so that the, they fell to the earth. And the chief judge and the lawyers and the priests and the teachers 
who smote upon Alma and Amulek were slain by the fall thereof. So the earth is always the final witness. This earth will always stand as God's final witness, and it will shake and tremble to the point where no one will miss her message. So Alma and and Amulek in verse 28 come out of the prison and were not hurt. Now, how's that? How's that a message you're going to miss? All the bad guys are destroyed. I shouldn't say that. The chief bad guys are destroyed. Alma and Amulek come walking out, for the Lord had granted unto them power. Now, verse 29, they're going to reject the final witness. Now the people, having heard a great noise, came rushing together by multitudes to know the cause of it. And when they saw Alma and Amulek going forth out of the prison, and the walls thereof had fallen to the earth, they were struck with great fear and fled from the presence of Alma and Amulek, even as a goat fleeth with her young from two lions. And thus they did flee from the presence of Alma and Amulek. They reject the final witness. And it shouldn't surprise us then in chapter 16 that the city of Ammoniah is destroyed. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, the Lord is using his people as the sword. If you read the book of Joshua, the Lord sends Israel into the land of Canaan, and they just, they decimate the Canaanites. And in the in the book of Mormon, I think Mormon is doing some prophetic midrash. He's doing some commentary. And so in the book of Mormon, it's the wicked that are doing the destroying. I'm going to read just this verse from Mormon's account. Mormon 4 verse 5, it says, The judgments of God will overtake the wicked, and it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. That's another interesting thing, that phrase of stirring up. Zeezrom is stirring everybody up, the judges, the lawyers, there's all this stirring up. That's kind of what the adversary's job is. But in the story of Ammonihah, They're not destroyed by the Nephites, they're destroyed by the Lamanites. Which is interesting fulfillment of a prophecy that the Lord gave to Nephi back in 1 Nephi chapter 2. He said, "...inasmuch as thou shalt keep my commandments, thou shalt be made a ruler and a teacher over thy brethren." Now pay attention to the theys. For behold, in that day that they, meaning the Lamanites, shall rebel against me, I will curse them even with a sore curse." And they shall have no power over thy seed, except they, meaning the Nephites, shall rebel against me also. And if it so be that they, meaning the Nephites, rebel, if the Nephites rebel against me, they, meaning the Lamanites, shall be a scourge unto thy seed, to stir them, meaning the Nephites, up in the ways of remembrance. And that's kind of how this is used. I mean, the Lamanites are used as the hammer here. Go to chapter 8. This is where he says, if you guys don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. So they say, who are you in verse 2? And then in verse 3 says, they didn't understand the words that he spake. In verse 4 it says, they said, we will not believe thy words if thou shouldst prophesy that this great city should be destroyed in one day. And then they say, who is God that he should send no more authority? And they just kind of talk about our city so great. And then if you go to the 16th chapter of Alma, it basically says, you know, the prophet's words are vindicated, maybe not right away, but they are eventually. Verse 9, it says, Thus ended the eleventh year of the reign of the judges, the Lamanites having been driven out of the land, and the people of Ammonihah were destroyed. Yea, every living soul of the Ammonihahites was destroyed, and also their great city, which they said God could not destroy because of its greatness. 
But behold, in one day it was left desolate, and the carcasses were mangled by dogs and wild beasts of the wilderness. That's a fun little Old Testament motif, too, in verse 10. The idea that there's chaos. Like, they're not just destroyed, but their carcasses are left, and they're they're mangled by wild beasts. And it stunk so bad that no one would go back there for many years. Just so nasty. That's such a symbolic thing. Yeah. And they called it the desolation of the Nihors. These people are of the profession of Nihor. And if you remember, we talked about being filled with hot air, the idea that Nihor means to snort. And so this whole ideology of the of the Ammonites is destroyed. They're wrecked. But this is one account of them getting destroyed. This is the Nephite version, right? One of the beautiful things about the Book of Mormon, and I'm just going to throw this out there to everyone who thinks Joseph Smith wrote this book. It is just what you're proposing is astounding. So this is the destruction of Ammoniah from the point of view of the people that lived in the city. But we have no idea why the Lamanites came and attacked them suddenly. So then in the very next chapter, chapter 17, we start a whole new story. This is Ammon and Aaron, Omner and Himni, when they go on a mission to the Lamanites. And you remember they convert a whole group of the Lamanites, and then the wicked Lamanites were so angry at the conversion of their brethren that they blamed the Nephites. And in chapter 25, verse 2, who do they take it out on? They blame the Nephites. And what do they do in verse 2? They go attack a Nephite city. Now, which particular city do they happen to attack? Ammoniah. And this is a completely different version of the story. In other words, we get to see the, the Book of Mormon presents the destruction of Ammoniah from two different points of view. We know now why the Lamanites happened to go attack them. And we know that that was convenient because the Lord was ready to have Ammoniah destroyed because of what was going on within Ammoniah. That is astounding literature. It's like a spiritual view of history. So for example, Brigham and others say, hey, the Civil War is a direct result of shedding the blood of prophets. Now that's not something you're going to read in a history book, but from a spiritual point of view, you can see why Brigham Young and others might say those kinds of things. And you can see why Mormon, centuries later, is writing this history and he says, this is why it happened. And by the way, can you imagine, that's not politically correct to make that statement, (laughs) but he's making it, and he's like, here it is. And I find it interesting that it's by the wicked that they're destroyed. Just to me, it's such a testimony that Joseph Smith could not have written this. He couldn't have weaved this together. Now, maybe if he has a decade or more to write it, and he has a PhD, like J.R.R. Tolkien did in writing Lord of the Rings, who was an English professor, this young man was 24 years old when the Book of Mormon is published, with no literary background, using absolutely no outside material, and not ever going back and correcting catching what he talked about in a previous chapter to write the next chapter. This is astounding. I just love pointing that out. I I think this is also a warning to us. This could have been prevented. I know we're not in 14. I know we're supposed to do 8 through 12, but just for fun, go to the 14th chapter. In chapter 14 of Alma, in verse 16, it says, now this judge was after the order and faith of Nehor who slew Gideon. And he's smoting Alma and Amulek. I got to say, there's a lot of stuff going on here that's a type of Jesus, right? Now, there's two of them, but think about this. They're, they're smitten, they're questioned, they're cross-examined. They have all these horrible things happen to them, and they're put in the belly of the earth, and the earth is going to shake, and they're going to come out. I see this as a type of Jesus. 
Notice the end of verse 18, they answer him nothing. But the middle of verse 18 says that they were after the profession of Nehor. And to reiterate from the last podcast, we talked about the order of the Nehors. There were specific things that they're doing. And one of the things the Nehors are doing, these people that come from this religious tradition, they believe in Yahweh. They believe in Jehovah. They just don't believe that he's going to die. They don't believe that he's going to come down and redeem them. There really isn't a need for an atonement. They don't really need to repent because he's going to redeem everybody. And so what are they pushing? They're pushing a lot of the things the Nephites are doing, but they're just twisting it just a little bit, aren't they? It's always that. It's like Satan cannot come up with anything his on his own. He can't come up with a new idea. All he ever does is he takes one of God's ideas and he twists it just a little bit, just enough so that it's destructive instead of saving. And so here's the idea of a Jesus that's twisted enough that it pulls them astray instead of leads them to the real Messiah. And this is so typical of the Antichrist in the Book of Mormon. So typical of everyone that leads people astray is they'll take a truth and they just twist it. See, Sherem took a truth and he twisted it. He says, yes, we need saving. We need to be saved. But it's the law of Moses that will save you. So he took a truth and he twisted it that actually led people away from Christ instead of to Christ. Nehor takes a truth and he twists it. Korhor's going to take a truth and he's going to twist it. And I just think we all need to rise up to say, I get it. I see the pattern. I'm not going to be fooled by those who take a truth and twist it ever so slightly to make it damaging instead of faith-promoting. It really leads to the questions that he's asked. As I was studying Alma 11, I thought, okay, I want to get in the mind of Zeezrom and the order of the Nehors to understand these questions. I think that really helps. So look at the questions in Alma 11. He says in verse 26, is there a true and living God? Now, they both agree the answer is yes. And so Amulek says, yeah, of course. And Zeezrom says, is there more than one God? I think Zeezrom's pushing Yahweh is God. He doesn't need a son. I think he's trying to draw out Amulek to basically contradict himself. And so he says, no. So wait a second. So Zeezrom said, how do you know these things? So then I really like verse 30. How do you even know what you know? And then his comeback was, well, an angel has made them known to me. And Zeezrom doesn't reject angels. Zeezrom's from the tradition of there are angels and there is a God. And I thought a lot about verse 30 and 31. How do you know these things are true? And we, as Latter-day Saints, have to be able to answer, I have had a witness of the Spirit. At the end of the day, we can't prove the gospel. We can't prove or disprove it. But I think we have to be able to answer that question. But then notice verse 32, then he just shifts and he says, well, who's going to come? Is it the Son of God? And then he says, yes. And I think Zeezrom is like trying to catch him there. And okay, well, is that two gods there? He's trying to trip him up. But then he says, is he going to save us in our sins? And then he says, no, you know, we have to repent, verse 37, and so on. But those questions that he's asking shows you who these guys are. These guys are so close to the Nephite religion, right? They still have, they have the, the same name of the God. They believe in angels. They believe in the law of witnesses. But like you said, they've tweaked it just enough. The three big tweaks that I think Mormon's going to pound on are going to be these three things. Social segregation or class distinctions. The Nehors and the Nephites have different views. The Nephites have what I call the egalitarian ideal, where everybody's the same. But the Nehors, which is ironic, you mentioned this in the last podcast, they're pushing for we're all going to be redeemed, but on earth they want class distinctions. They want to have you know 
I'm better than you. Priests yeah. are better than hearers. Priests don't have to work. And the other couple things they're doing is they're denying the atonement of Christ. Why does Yahweh have to die? Why does Jehovah or Jesus, why does he have to die if um, we're all going to be redeemed? There's no need for an atonement. And the third thing they're going to do, which is related to number one with class distinctions, is this idea of costly apparel. The apparel is how, that's how they show their wealth. Now, this is just a, a we're back to this, gee, how did Joseph Smith do this? But just look at chapter 11, verse 2. Look what it says. If a man owed somebody else, there's three things that they can do to you. Um, if he would not pay what he owed, he, he was complained to the judge, and the judge executed the authority, the orders. What did they do? Well, they judged him according to the law, which were brought against him, and thus the man was compelled to pay, that's number one, pay the debt, that which he owed, or be stripped, number two, or be cast out, banished from the community. That's essentially a death sentence, being cast out of the community. The second one is so interesting, or be stripped. Now, we don't know, but I think what's going on here is that's how they showed their wealth. Their wealth was manifest and costly apparel. So if you couldn't pay the debt, they would take your costly apparel. There's no way Joseph Smith knows this, right? But these three things, the class distinctions, the denying the atonement, and the costly apparel— are the very three things that later in the Book of Mormon, Samuel the Lamanite is going to point his finger and say, you guys are doing this wrong. And I find this fascinating because I think prophets do this all the time. They have to be so careful. And what I mean by that is this. Very rarely will a prophet stand up and say someone's name and say, this guy is doing this. But what they'll do is they'll describe it, and those with ears to hear can hear it and hear what's going on. So I'm just going to read this. Look in Helaman 13. This is Samuel. Look what he says. Verse 26, you are worse than they, for as the Lord liveth, if a prophet comes among you and declares unto you the word of the Lord, which testifies of your sins and iniquities, you're angry with him, and you cast him out and seek all manner ways to destroy him. This is the story of Alman and Amulek. Yea, and you will say that he's a false prophet and that he's a sinner and that he's of the devil because he testifies that your deeds are evil. But if a man shall come among you and shall say, do this, there is no iniquity, do that, you shall not suffer. Yea, he will say, walk after the pride of your own hearts, walk after the pride of your eyes, and do whatever your heart desires. And if a man shall come among you and say this, you will receive him. And you'll say that he is a prophet. And you will lift him up, and you will give unto him of your substance, and you'll give unto him of your gold and your silver, and then notice... You'll clothe him with your costly apparel because he speaks flattering words unto you. In other words, the order of the Nehors is happening in Helaman. And Samuel's basically saying, if people are doing this, you guys are so dumb, you're supporting it, knock it off. But he doesn't come out and say, reject the order of the Nehors, but he goes point by point on all the things they're doing. And in the Nephite culture, this is the problem that they have. This is what they're struggling with. Class distinctions, wealth, denying the atonement. Today, our culture is a little bit different, but what I find so interesting and what I think makes the Book of Mormon so relevant is this idea of the adversary, like Bryce said, he can just take a truth and just tweak it a little bit and then cause all kinds of social problems. I mean, the Nephites are going to be undone by these guys. And also the questions in Alma 11. They specifically go after these witnesses, and they ask a question that they know, that they know the answer. They know the answer that they're going to have, and by asking the question that way and by drawing out the answer, they seek to accuse them. 
it's kind of like it's very much like today because as soon as they stand behind Zeezrom, and then as soon as Zeezrom proves to be a convert, they turn their back on Zeezrom, and they just abandon anyone who won't believe what they believe. Beautiful chapters, very applicable to our day. So, Alma 11, have you ever heard anybody say that there was no resurrection in the Old Testament, the resurrection isn't plainly taught? Do you remember Robert J. Matthews? Yep. Loved him. I remember one time he came and he was speaking to us and he said, the Old Testament gets beat up a little bit because there's not a lot of in-your-face resurrection stuff happening. But then I remember he said, think about how many times they're buried with their relatives. Abraham wants to be buried you know, where his sons are and his sons want to be buried where Abraham is. And then remember what happens to Joseph when he dies in Egypt? He says, carry me. Carry me to my fathers. Yeah. Do you remember that three and a half hour movie, The Ten Commandments? There's a scene in there where they're taking the sarcophagus of Joseph with his bones. They're taking it back to the land of Canaan. Which has been in the ground for a long time. Right. How important it was for Joseph to get back to the land of his fathers. And I remember Robert J. Matthews saying, why would that even matter if there's no resurrection? So I just want to say this in defense of the Book of Mormon. There's a lot of biblical scholarship out there that says that the Old Testament does not directly teach resurrection until about the 200s, 200 BC-ish, with the Book of Daniel. Now, we don't know when the Book of Daniel was textualized, but in critical scholarship, a lot of them say this was happening during like the revolt in 165, and that the Book of Daniel is addressing okay, um, if I'm righteous, how is this even fair? Because the righteous are being decimated. In 165, eight, in 165 BC, historically, the Jews are doing all the right things, and they're being wrecked by their enemies. Prior to this, the message of the Old Testament is, well, if you do good, you'll be blessed, but if you do bad, well, you're going to get wrecked. And why was the temple wrecked in the Bible? Well, the authors say, well, you guys were knuckleheads. You guys were bad. And so the book of Daniel is grappling with this, and so is Malachi. And Malachi's message, it says this, you've wearied the Lord with your talk, but you ask, by what have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and them he delights. Or else, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am sending my messenger to clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple suddenly. For the angel of the covenant that you desire, he is already coming. This is Malachi 2, 17 and 3, 1 through 4. This promise that even though bad things are happening, God says, I'm going to send my messenger. There's so much in here. But just know that historically, the Bible has been kind of beaten up a little bit, saying, when I say the Bible, I mean the Old Testament, that it doesn't teach the resurrection. And yet there are these little hints in there, like we talked about with Abraham and with, with Joseph. Here's a couple others. The Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel 37. Right? It's the army of Israel. They're dead. But what happens in there? Flesh comes upon them. They come back. They live. They breathe. Yeah. You've got both Elijah and Elisha doing what to little boys? Raising them up. There's in both in 1 Kings 17 and in 2 Kings 4, there's this sacred embrace, and they're brought back from the dead. And so I just want to submit that the Book of Mormon is a record of a very distinct group of people that believe in Yahweh, but they also believe in the resurrection. And so when I was on my mission, we used Alma 11 a lot with the resurrection, because to me, those verses are so plain and so clear. Alma 11, 42 and 43 and 44, so powerful and so clear about God 
and about the resurrection. Look in verse 43. The spirit and the body shall be reunited again in its perfect form. Both limb and joint shall be restored to its proper frame, even as we now are at this time. And we shall be brought to stand before God, knowing even as we know now and have a bright recollection of all our guilt. And this restoration shall come to all, both old and young, bond and free, male and female, both the wicked and the righteous. And you can go on. I really like this. And I think that what Amulek's trying to teach is that if you're good and you die, it will be fixed in the next life. And this, the reverse is also true. Zeezrom, you're rich, but if you're going to mock the truth, you can't escape it. And I think the Book of Mormon teaches this so well. And I think the Bible did. I believe the, Bible, the, the Old Testament originally did. And I think the editors struggle with this. And so that's why we have these two parties in the New Testament. We have the Pharisees and we have the Sadducees. And the best way I like to teach about how you can remember the Sadducees and the Pharisees is the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they are... Sad. You see? <laughs> but the Sadducees represent the conservative Judaism. Yeah. They're the ones who say, hey, if it's not in the Tanakh, if it's not in the Old Testament, we're not going to go with it. And the Pharisees are this new, in scholarship they call it this, like, this new movement, that they believe in the resurrection that's coming out of the Maccabean revolt of the second century BC. But what the Book of Mormon does is it pushes that time period back further and says, no, First Temple Israelite religion believed in a resurrection. This was going on, but it's unique to the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is going to teach resurrection like, unlike anything in the Old Testament. And so I just wanted to make sure that we drew that out. If you want to geek out on some of this stuff, we'll put more of this in the show notes. James Kugel and John Levinson are both great scholars that say, hey, resurrection's a thing in the Old Testament, but you got to dig. And that's what I love about the Book of Mormon is you don't have to have a PhD and you don't have to dig. It's like right there. It's gold and it's on the surface. Now, speaking of which, I want to throw one more in. If we look at Ammoniah as a pattern of the second coming, then may I suggest that this is true of our day as it was true of their day. If you'll turn to Alma chapter 10, Amulek basically says there's a reason this city hasn't been destroyed yet. This order of the Nehors was pretty much ripe for destruction. But there's a reason they hadn't been destroyed. And Amulek says in verse 22, Yea, I say unto you that if it were not for the prayers of the righteous who are now in the land, that ye would even now be visited with utter destruction. That's my defense to what I just said, is it seems like they were already wicked enough to qualify for destruction. Yet it wouldn't be by flood, as were the people of Noah's. It'd be by famine and pestilence and the sword. But it is by the prayers of the righteous that you are spared. Now, therefore, if you cast out the righteous from among you, then will the Lord not stay his hand. I remind you that in Sodom, Abraham got the Lord down to 10. Will you save the city for 10? And the Lord said, yes which is a sad commentary, because if you count up the number of people that were in Lot's family, I count 10, at least 10. Lot's family could have saved the city, but they had cast out their own righteousness, and therefore they did not save the city. The reason the Lord is holding on and waiting is because of the prayers of the righteous. I think we can apply that to individuals, to families, to societies, to everything. It is the prayers of the righteous that is holding back destruction. 
Now, he kind of specifically says to the wicked, if you cast out righteousness, but I think there's a play on that to all of us who are trying to be righteous. If you hide your righteousness, if you bury it, if you're afraid to be righteous, if you cast out your own righteousness, then will the Lord not spare his hand. And sometimes we see that. We see that in our society where society shames righteousness. And righteous people sometimes choose to cower. In the book of Revelation where the beast comes and he puts a mark on your forehead, and then it's very clear you cannot play in the beast's playground if you don't have the mark. And there's the shame. If you do not play by the world's rules, here comes the shame. And some people just will not rise up and say, I won't. I will not bow to the music. I will not, like Daniel did. And so I think the, the warning is, if we are afraid to, to stand up, if we cast our own righteousness out, if we're afraid to be righteous because the world shames those who are righteous, then our society has no hope. I wonder how many people were thinking, man, Alma and Amulek are making some good points. Maybe there's something to this. Notice Alma 10 verse 19, the middle of the verse. It says, Yea, well did he say that if the time should come that the voice of this people should choose iniquity, that is, if the time should come that this people should fall into transgression, they would be ripe for destruction. That's a theme, that's a thread that's woven through the Book of Mormon. This is not the only place where this happens. The thread is this, that when the majority choose wrong, they're ripe. And it doesn't mean they're going to be plucked. It doesn't mean they're going to be burned. It means they're ripe. Now, they they could change. They could repent. The Lord could destroy them later. But they're in that position of being ripe. And I think that for us, I think it's an invitation to stand up. There's a picture of this guy, and I don't remember his name, but everyone is uh, hiling Hitler, and he's in, in his car, and they're all got their hands up in the salute. And there's one guy, and I'm and I'm sitting here doing it now with my arms. Bryce, tell everybody what I'm doing with my he's arms. He's folding his arms tightly like I refuse. Yeah, and, and it's a true story. I, I'm going to put this in the show notes. It's, it's a really good one. In fact, August Landmesser is his name. He's got his own Wikipedia page. There's this photograph where he's just got his arms folded, and he refuses to give the Nazi salute, and he's like, no. And there's a lot to his story. He was dating a gal who was definitely not in the good graces of the Reich. And I see that picture a lot, and I think, that's Zeezrom. When Zeezrom figures it out, then he goes and he switches on the other team, and he's like, no, these guys are right. And I think it probably would have been hard for Amulek to say in front of his people, hey, what's that verse where he says, I knew, but I would not know? Let's read that verse. This is where Amulek's kind of breaking it down. Look what it says in Alma Alma 10.6. I did harden my heart, and I was called many times, and I would not hear. Therefore I knew concerning these things, yet I would not know. Therefore I went on rebelling against God in the wickedness of my heart, even until the fourth day of this seventh month. What I like about there's so many things I like about that. One of the things I like about that is he was a good guy deep down, but he just was kind of lost. I like what Bryce said, where this is just an invitation to us to say, okay, how am I doing? Like the people, they were, you know, they can get ripe. Where am I at? Where's 51% of my heart? Now, clearly, on my 126, the Lord doesn't want 51%. 
of Mike Day. He wants the whole package. He wants us in for the whole treatment. But we've got to do some self-checking here. Another thing that I really like, and this is totally just so fun, it's punning on Zezrum's name. Look, we didn't even talk about the money. Look in chapter 11, where they break down all the different types of money and, and the bribe. People figured out that the bribe was about 42 days wage for a judge, which was pretty good. But notice verse 6, a senum of silver, an amnor of silver, and an ezram of silver. Well, if you take Z, which is like something or the, or here is some, and then ezram, you get Zezram. And so there's this idea of metonymy, punning going on with Zezram's name, that maybe his name wasn't Zezram, that his name was a pun, that it was like, hey, here's some silver. In other words, like if you remember the Old Testament story where David's trucking around and he's got to get some stuff, he's got to get some food for his guys, and they're like these, they're being bandits, and they come across this guy named Nabal. And Nabal in Hebrew means fool. And he says to Nabal, hey, you got to give me some stuff. And Nabal's like, I don't have to give you anything. And Nabal's not armed. David's with all his merry men, and they have all their swords. And I think the author of the text is basically saying, this guy's a fool. He's going to get wrecked. And then the wife of Nabal comes to David and says, please don't kill my husband. He's such a fool. And she saves his life. Now, I don't know if there's any meaning to this, but then flip Nabal. If you flip it backwards, you get Laban. And who is Laban in in the book of Genesis? He's like this shrewd, money-grubbing, kind of a, a conniver. And he's kind of a not nice guy. And then you open up the book of Mormon in the very first couple chapters. Who's the conniver? In other words, Laban is the same kind of guy. Maybe their names, there's different levels to their names, and maybe there's some punning going on. Gordon Thomason's written some stuff on this we'll post in the show notes, but he makes this really good point where he says, hey, maybe they put his name in here as Zezrum to protect him because he changed. And it's an act of mercy on Mormon's part where he says, hey, we're going to call him Zezrum. In other words, hey, here's some silver. And to Mormon, it's a joke. There's a great uh, Bible scholar that said that the Old Testament is riddled with dad jokes. And it really is. As you get into the language and you read it in the Hebrew, the Old Testament is riddled with puns. But yet, so is the Book of Mormon. And this is one of those puns. Another one is, and this is fun, Book of Mormon Central did one on this. I think we talked about it, where Nephi, his name literally means goodly. And so he says, I, Nephi, haven't been born of goodly parents. And Nephi can also mean large in stature. And so there's a lot of puns and riffing going on with Nephi's name. But anyway, I think that Zezrum's name is a little bit of a pun, but I also like it as, hey, where's Zezrum? We have those moments, don't we, Bryce? Yeah, I love later on when Alma goes on a mission to the Zoramites, it says he thought it expedient that they should try the virtue of the word, therefore he took. Now, here's the group of people going with Alma on a mission, Ammon. Aaron, Omner, Himna he left, but the former three he took, and also Amulek and Zeezrom. What verse are you in? I'm in Alma 31.6. He took Zeezrom on a mission. This is a beautiful story. Now remember, Zeezrom started out as chief among the bad guys and ends up a missionary with Alma to the Zoramites. And then there's one more reference to him that is intriguing. Go to Helam in chapter 5, verse 41. And Abinadab said unto them, You must repent and cry unto the voice, even until you shall have faith in Christ. 
who was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom. Fascinating. So this is the Lamanites. Christ was taught unto you by Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom. So I think one of the great pleas the Lord is making in this week's chapter is to recognize the power of your witness, the power of your role in the unfolding of the restoration. May the Almas continue to preach. I love the Almas of our day. I love President Nelson. I love prophets, seers, and revelators. I love men who are ordained and hold keys. I love powerful women who preach powerful gospel. I love general authorities. I love their witnesses. But I believe the heart and soul of this work rolling forward is because the Amuleks and the Zeezrums bear their testimony to their friends. And even if it's not a testimony of words, it's a testimony of their life. It's the way they live. May we as Latter-day Saints, may the, may the Amuleks and the Zeezrums rise up and understand the role we play. May the Almas continue to preach. I love General Conference. I love their words. But this work rolls forward on the backs of the Amuleks and the Zeezrums. And I know that's true. That's good. With that, we will end, and we will pick it up again when we get to 13. Yes. Which is all Priesthood. in pre-earth life and all that stuff. Melchizedek, Salem. Yeah. In the middle of Ammoniah... Alma and Amulek preach, we can turn this city around like Melchizedek did in Salem. And so we can turn any city around like Melchizedek did in Salem. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.